Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Captain Roy's Rusty Rocket Radio Show, episode 445. It is Thursday the 16th of June 2022 at 2246.18 and we are gathered here again today, (laughs) I sound like a priest to talk about science fiction, fantasy and horror, but today it is our weekly-ish Doctor Who revisit, a revisit of Classic Who, chronologically, from the first story to the last in 1989, that I have been doing for a very long time, since 2014. Oh, it is quite hot today. It feels like it is the first hot day of summer. It didn't help that I was sodding around in the studio trying to get the sound right and trying to get comfortable. Talking about that, I'm in a completely different position today. I'm not standing up. I just couldn't face standing up. I did try sitting in the chair of typing. That didn't work. It's not the most comfortable position for extended chatting. Instead, I've drawn up my large green leather footrest from its station in front of the sofa in my TARDIS, which is unsurprisingly what I call my studio. I've got my finger poised over the P button in case I need to use it again, as I did just a few seconds ago when some imbecile in a modded car flew down the road. I mean, don't they have any consideration for podcasters? Probably not. Let us start off with the Journal of Rewatching. <laughs> it can't have passed your notice again that I've managed to miss another revisit. And the days of release are also getting further and further apart. I've been having migraines, skin conditions. Tiredness, Tourette's, aches and pains, and stress, and of course, those things add to the general stress and my general sense of fed-upness. You name it, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the weight of the universe, and even delicious cider and cake isn't going to fix that. And by the way, I keep mentioning cider in this podcast, which makes me sound as... Ford Prefect is described like an unruly boozer, but I'm not. Only occasionally have the odd cider. Icy, cold, delicious cider. Mmm. I've actually run out of cider. I do have cake. Got a banana bread loaf thingy and a lemon loaf. I do have a cool drink not too far away, which is something. Here we go again, I'm talking about food. Yeah, and I'm also a little troubled, more than a little troubled, by the state and the format of my ever-evolving podcast. You would have thought that after nine years, I would have managed to sort out how my podcast runs and works and the order of things that I'm going to talk about. But we have these constant changes and my lack of decisiveness and 
You can probably tell from all the nonsense I spew out on my social media that I'm having a bit of a time. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. The show's going to continue, of course. There is absolutely no question about it. But I'm sick of not being able to maintain a consistent format after so long. And we've got the 10th anniversary of Captain Roy's Rusty Rocket Radio Show pretty soon, and I'd like to get these matters settled by then. That is the state of things at the moment. It sounds incredibly stressful, and I imagine you're listening to this thinking, oh man, I wish you'd just talk about Doctor Who and relax into the podcast, and then I can relax too. Well, I'm going to do that right now. Tonight, on the classic Doctor Who revisit, we will be talking about The Leisure Hive from 1980. As usual, let's start off with some cast, crew and production notes. The fourth Doctor is played by Tom Baker. His companions are Romana, played by Lala Ward, and K-9, played briefly, and we'll get on to that in a bit, by John Leeson. I don't have anything to add about notable cast. I'm not denigrating the cast. I'm sure they're all notable people. Nothing stuck out as unusual or of extra interest to add to this podcast, though. The director was Lovett Bickford. The writer, David Fisher. I can't remember if we've talked about Lovett Bickford before, but we have talked about David Fisher. The producer. Aha. All hail the great producer John Nathan Turner, who took over. He was 29 years old when he replaced Graham Williams. He was, not a great shock, the youngest Doctor Who producer ever. He did put in his time, though. He worked his way up at the Beeb from the ground up, literally at floor level, I don't know if he was a runner or not, and first worked on Doctor Who in 1969 on the story The Space Pirates, which we have, of course, covered a long time ago now. Filming locations? Well, there was on-location filming in Brighton, and the rest of it was at... BBC Television Centre at Shepherd's Bush. This is the first story of season 18. It is story 109. It follows the Horns of Nymon, which we covered in 438. It consisted of four roughly 25-minute episodes each and was first broadcast from the 30th of August to the 20th of September, 1980. Before we get into the zeitgeist, I've got to digress for a moment. Do you know what? Sitting on this plump pouffet or footrest is incredibly comfortable. Ah, this is very good. I'm still speaking on the usual SM58, but I've lowered the mic stand down to a comical height. <laughs> If I was doing this as a YouTube live stream, 
you would think that I was just a very short person, because my head's about a foot above my desk. <laughs> I'm so low, I've had to tilt the monitor so I can see my show notes. Ah, this is very comfortable. Oh, I'm getting too meta. Another thing I've done, I'm not sure if you can tell from the sound differences, I've moved the mic back a bit. I'm now about six inches away. It's still pointed off-axis at my chin. I usually have my mic much closer. Well, I've had it all different distances, but I usually have it much closer. And what I found was I had less editing to do because it was picking up less mouth noises, which is great because I've got a noisy, clicky, clacky predator mouth. <laughs> and now I'm thoroughly distracted. Ten minutes in, off on a tangent. Let us do the zeitgeist for the leisure hive and tell you what happened on the day of the first broadcast. And that was the 30th of August, 1980. In the UK, David Bowie's brilliant Ashes to Ashes was number one. And not having anything else to talk about, I just wanted to do a hatchet job on one of my old schools. I was one year into a four-year sentence at a revolting and useless money pit of a private school that has long since pivoted to a posh nursery. Good riddance. And that is it for the Zeitgeist this week. As usual, I'm going to roll you a short 15-second clip, and then I'll tell you what happens. And then we'll get on to what I thought and some trivia. You can enjoy the clip in 3, 2, 1. Wait! Have you ever experimented with time? Doctor! Romana, thank heaven you're safe! Don't interrupt, he's a pharmacy. Harding! Doctor! Hello, baby. I hope you enjoyed that clip. Let me now tell you what happens in the Leisure Hive. The Doctor and Romana are on holiday on Brighton Beach and also hiding from the Black Guardian. Romana is a bit annoyed because apparently the Doctor brought them there on the wrong day. It's not the most pleasant of weather. The Doctor's all snuggled into his new outfit, which looks very warm and comfortable, and Romana goes for a walk. She throws a beach ball, K9 chases it into the sea, and K9 explodes. And that's it for K9. Romana suggests a holiday spot off Earth, the leisure hive of the post-war world of Argolis, with its regenerative experiential grid. At the leisure hive, the Argolins are experiencing financial problems, so an Earthman called Brock offers to buy the planet on behalf of their ancient enemy, the Fomazi. The Argolins refuse. The Argolin leader, the aged Morix, dies from the accelerating decrepitude suffered by all Argolins 
as a result of the radiation from the war, and Mina, also frail, takes over. The Doctor witnesses a death resulting from the sabotage of the Tachyon recreation generator. Another Earthman, Hardin, a scientist, has been hired by the Argolins to develop a rejuvenation therapy for them because they are sterile and dying out as a result of the fallout from the war. The Doctor and Romana, caught trespassing, are tasked with assisting Harding. They discover, though his research is promising, the results are in fact fabricated. The Doctor is then blamed for the death of another Earthman involved in the purchase offer. Meanwhile, with Romana's expert help, Hardin's experiment initially succeeds, securing the Doctor's freedom from prosecution, but later it fails, although it fails unseen to anyone else. Mina volunteers to test the system, due to her rapidly progressing death process, but Hardin suggests the Doctor instead. The aforesaid malfunctioning system ages him by 500 years, and he emerges an old man. Mina's aggressive son, a chap called Pangol, orders the Doctor and Romana imprisoned. They are later freed by Hardin, and they find Pangol performing experiments. It transpires that the power-mad Pangol is the result of a clone experiment to cure the Argolins of their affliction, though he is the only successful result of that experimentation. Brock and his solicitor, a man called Clout, turn out to be disguised for Marzi Mafia. The crazed Pangol creates an army of clones. However, the clones turn out to be facsimile image copies of the rejuvenated Doctor, who sabotaged the machine with the TARDIS's randomizer. Hardin, in love with the dying Mina, puts her into the machine. The stymied Pangol enters the machine as well, but the Doctor has set it to rejuvenate, not copy. The Doctor throws the ancient Helmet of Theron at the visualising crystal, which halts the process. Mina emerges rejuvenated and healthy and holding a baby Pangol. The Doctor and Romana then leave the Argolins and the good for Marzi not the bad mafioso for Marzi, in peace. The Doctor also leaves the TARDIS randomizer behind, making them open to attack by the Black Guardian. He does this because he says he's fed up of not knowing where he'll turn up next. Romana says that she thought this was going to be a holiday, and the Doctor says something like... Well, he's glad that he's getting back to work then. 
And then they both enter the TARDIS. Okay, that was the rundown of the story. Let me now tell you what I thought. The opening shot on Brighton Beach is a long, slow, lingering camera tracking across a set of beach tents. It takes an inordinate amount of time, is incredibly slow-paced, and I found it tedious. On Wikipedia, there's an unsighted claim I couldn't verify that it was John Nathan Turner's homage to Lucino Visconti's art movie Death in Venice from 1971. Right off the bat, they killed K-9. On the special feature video, John Nathan Turner says K-9 was silly and expensive. I heard the figure quoted for the last K-9 being £20,000 in 1980. John Nathan Turner, who I'm now going to refer to as JNT, said, like the sonic screwdriver, K-9 was too magic and useful, and along with Time Lady Romana, made the Doctor far too powerful. And besides, Tom Baker hated K-9. He says, I can't remember what making of video that I saw this in, that he didn't like K-9 because it was always malfunctioning and because he had to squat down. I think it's more than that. I think he didn't like being upstaged by a metal pooch. I find it very funny also that JNT brought John Leeson back just to be K-9 one last time before unceremoniously plunging the poor doggy into the drink. And that was just as I was redeveloping my affection for the little chap. But I have to agree with JNT, he was right, and we've talked about how, similarly in New Who, the Doctor is far too godlike, which reduces the thrill of peril in the plot. The special features video also shows us how K-9's dismissal was a portent of Tom Baker's impending departure. Baker was both tired of playing the role for so long, and being at creative loggerheads with the new boy, JNT, who wanted to stretch his wings. They clashed. The TARDIS's randomizer that originated in the Armageddon Factor, which we talked about in Pod 420. Now that it's gone from the TARDIS, I wonder what's going to happen. Come to think of it, I wonder what's going to happen with K9. You've got to remember, it is a long time since I've watched these episodes. Perhaps I've seen them on repeat, but still, it is a very, very long time ago. So I am almost as eager to find out as you are. Well, you're probably in the same position as me. Maybe you've even seen them more times than I have. But anyway, it should be interesting. Though, please don't send me any spoilers. I want to arrive at these episodes during the revisit as fresh as possible. Although, please, 
do get in touch about reviews that I've already made. Anyway, back to what I thought. There was apparently a new and third and last version of the classic Doctor Who TARDIS prop commissioned by JNT for his reign of terror on Doctor <laughs> No, during his takeover of the show. Honestly, though, I did not notice the difference between this TARDIS and the last TARDIS while I was watching. It is hard to pay attention to everything. That's my excuse. Remember when I said there was that ancient helmet that the Doctor throws at the visualizer screen of the machine? That was referenced before during the story, though I didn't mention it in my rundown. It belonged to an ancient hero called Theron. It is Theron's helmet, and I think it's an amazing prop. It is like a massive version of the Corinthian helmet. If you've seen that, you often see that in films about the ancient Greeks. Combined with the flowing robes and the bee-like attributes, I was reminded of James Faulkner's superbly alien Mr. K with his weird helmet, flowing robes, and bee gun from the Martian Chronicles. I loved the Doctor's new wardrobe. It is a spin on the outfit he's always had, but it's got a new, heavier, thicker, more luxurious red coat. It's soft and warm-looking, and they've dipped his scarf into red. It's still the same scarf underneath, but it's a lot redder. It is altogether a smarter spin on the original scruff. Like I said, it looks very comfortable, and I wouldn't mind owning something like that myself. Especially when you see the Doctor sitting on his deck chair on a cold Brighton beach, all snuggled into this new outfit and having a snooze. Ah, I could do with a snooze on Brighton Beach. Or any beach. Did I mention I need a holiday? The Doctor undergoes two traumas in this story where he's always undergoing some kind of horrible torture <laughs> during the series as a whole. He is first seemingly torn limb from limb in a scene that rather disturbed me, though it turns out that it was an illusion. That's the cliffhanger we have at the end of episode one, and at the beginning of episode two we find out that he is still alive. He later rapidly ages by 500 years after being used as a guinea pig in the machine. I thought as a physically old man, the Doctor looked marvellously wizardy, although he doesn't seem very pleased with his rapid ageing. Oh, what a complainer these Gallifreyans are. All he has to do is regenerate. Let's talk about the Argolins. I liked the bee-like nature of the Argolins. I was impressed and sad with the grace with which the peaceful aliens succumbed to the terminal phase of their lives. 
that biology is fascinating with those head cones slowly depleted of beads as their final death processes draw near. And those head cones themselves reminded me of those cones of perfume worn by the ancient Egyptians. I also liked their look. They seem tall and green and graceful and elegantly dressed humanoids with an impression of iridescent scales and a couple of translucent diaphanous wing-like material touches to their flowing outfits. Altogether, with the peacefulness and the gracefulness and the bees, I would call them Vulcan Elf Bees. The story has got hive in the title, after all. The Fomazi, on the other hand, look absolutely ridiculous. They are supposed to be well-built, sinister reptilians. They don't look like that. They look like stuffed plushies. Just great big bumbling soft toys, and they are obviously covered with fabric. It looks nothing like skin or flesh. And the other head-scratcher is how do these huge formazi fit inside a human suit to disguise themselves as Brock and Clout? It isn't explained. I liked the relationship between the second leader of the Argolins, Mina, and the scientist hired by them, Hardin. I thought the way he was so protective towards Mina was sweet. Here's me about a day and a half later. It is Saturday the 18th of June 2022 at 01.25.42. Yes, that's how dedicated I am. Hello. I should have mentioned the theme music, so let's do that now. The new theme music commissioned by JNT to be more spacey, is indeed properly sci-fi and modern and dynamic, and dare I say it, more metal, though it was largely played on a selection of expensive synthesizers by Peter Howell of the BBC's Radiophonic Workshop, another, at the time, young person. It was only used for a few seasons, but is probably the theme music I remember best after the classic theme by Delia Derbyshire and Dick Mills, also members of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. In addition to the new theme music, there was also a new Season 18 Starfield end credit graphical animation, that also added to the overall science fiction effect. It sounds very good and is all very pretty. Those are not an exhaustive supply of thoughts I had about the Leisure Hive, but as much as it is worth going into without making this overly long. Let us move on to some trivia. Again, referring to the Special Features video, JNT said he didn't arrive on the show with an agenda for change, but then 
Rather contradicting himself in the same interview, he says he had long planned substantial changes sometime before while he was working on the show. I suppose what he's saying is he didn't just arrive having no idea about Doctor Who. He's kind of patting himself on the back for his changes during the interview. That's what I thought anyway. Seems like a pleasant chap, but, you know, producer's ego... He also takes a poke at the silliness of Douglas Adams' scripts, as well as K-9, which I thought on the whole were fair, although I'm okay with Douglas Adams' writing, and I'm not averse to the little robot. But making the tone more serious was, I suppose, a good idea. Increase the drama. As I mentioned at the top of the show, JNT was 29 years old when he took over the show. 29 to take over a fairly large BBC production. That is amazing, that is impressive, that is depressing, considering the state of my own career. Also, get used to hearing his name mentioned as producer to the point where it will become redundant, because he was the last and longest classic Doctor Who producer. He sadly had a quite short life and died in 2002. R.I.P. John Nathan Turner. And that is it for my revisit of classic Doctor Who's The Leisure Hive from 1980. I hope you enjoyed that, as comfortable as my puffet is. Just sitting in one position for so long does get a little tiring, according to the waveform in Audacity. I've been taping for 37 minutes and 23 seconds. And now it is over. The show is done. The show that you just listened to is made by me. I'm Roy Matur, a writer. Matur is spelt M-A-T-H-U-R. Yes, I know, you're probably sick of hearing that. You can find more about me or get in touch at RoyMatur.com. If you want to help, please review and rate the show on whatever platform you listen. Recommend it to a friend or an enemy. That works if you hate it. Recommend this show to an enemy. Even better, more dramatically, recommend it to a mortal enemy. Or click on the contact or support link on the website. You can get in contact with me and you can DM me on Twitter or you can send me an email to talk about Doctor Who or science fiction, fantasy and horror media in general. And you can also support me on Ko-Fi. There are links to all that stuff and more and the blog and all sorts of good stuff at the website. And that is it. Thanks for tuning in. You were listening to Captain Roy's Rusty Rocket Radio Show, the incredibly stupidly named podcast I know. This was episode 445. I don't think I mentioned that this was episode 445 at the top of the show. How incredibly annoying. That is definitely going to upset my OCD. Ah, I'm going to have to insert that. Recorded on 
Thursday the 16th of June 2022, and the time at the end of the show is 23.36.54. Thanks for listening, everyone, and continuing to listen after almost 10 years, not long now until the anniversary of this show, and bye-bye for now. Bye.